I want to thank so many of you for encouraging me the last few weeks. I don't think that I've ever preached in a church, and I've preached in many, many churches, where so many people have either came up to me or sent me texts through the week telling me that they are praying for me. And so I am, I am so grateful for that. My heart uh, is endeared towards you for that. Um, it was Charles Spurgeon who said, there is no kinder thing anyone can do for me but to pray. And so uh, I agree with that. There's nothing more kind you could do for me uh, than to pray for me. And I stand in great need of your prayer. Uh, so let us pray this morning. Well, Father, as we, we come to you, help me to understand the seriousness and the weightiness of this task, God, as both a Christian and as a minister. And Lord, we give you praise. As, uh, as the famous Puritan said, the death of death and the death of Christ. So God, as you tore that veil, that curtain from the top to the bottom, giving us access into your presence through Christ Jesus as we come into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of you, God. Oh Lord, make us come boldly, but make us come with much reverence. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you to lift our heads to lift our hearts to worship you. And we trust that you'll do this, Lord. You're our hope. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you open your Bible this morning to the third Psalm, Psalm 3. And as you turn there to the third Psalm, you'll, you'll see a few things that are new to us in the Psalms that are not new to the Psalms, but new to us as we approach Psalm 3. You'll see a superscription there. That's the little title above verse 1. You'll see a superscription. You'll also see perhaps out to the right side of your Bible, or maybe it's, it's broken up a few of the verses. You'll see the word Salah, and we'll talk about both the superscription and the word Salah later this morning. just want to point those out to you as you turn to Psalm chapter 3 and God's inspired word for us. These are the words of God for us, even for us this morning here in Tullahoma. Psalm chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him and God. Salah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Salah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Salah. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. It has been said that the Psalms cover every emotion of the human heart. 
whether you're up or you're down, whether you are struggling or hurting or confused, whether you are running or whether you are hiding, uh, there is a psalm that will connect with you, that by the Spirit will speak to you, even minister to you. And this morning we will see another emotion, uh, another dire circumstance unfold before us. And we think as we look to Psalm 3 how terrible it is when someone attacks their own family. When a, when a son attacks his own dad in this circumstance, how, how shocking it is to us, how, how wicked it truly is when a son attacks the man who gave him life. And this is the sort of atrocity that's the background for Psalm 3 this morning. This is uh, what we see here in the superscription. Look at that small title there below Psalm 3, above verse 1. That superscription reads, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Not all psalms have a superscription, but when they do, they are uh, very helpful. They're very useful to us in helping us understand the psalm and where it comes from. And so as you see on our slide, Absalom's rebellion. So if, if you were to look back, and I just want to encourage you as I went back this week and, and read that text, I want to encourage you to make a note of that and go back this week and read that. But it's in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. And that really gives the background of Absalom attacking his father. And we'll not go back this morning. We won't read all five chapters. But I do want to give you uh, look, just, a, just a brief background of that. And so if you, if you remember anything about Absalom, uh, he already had blood on his hands. Uh, he had already murdered his brother Amnon for violating his half-sister. And so he was already akin to family discord and murder, if you will. But now in this particular text, Absalom begins plotting to take the throne, to take King David's throne, his father's throne. And so while David is busy governing the nation, Absalom begins to charm the people. Absalom begins to win their hearts. The Bible tells us that he would stand in the gate and his people would come in to see the king. The king's busy, you're not going to see the king. But Absalom would begin to plant seeds of of doubt in their mind and, and seeds of discord in their mind. And he would say, oh, if only you had a leader such as me that would care for you and would listen to your problems. And so Absalom, he charms the people. He wins their hearts. And this rebellion of Absalom, it began in Hebron, about 25 miles outside of the city in Jerusalem. And that's where the people of Israel, they, they rallied to this new king, this, this one that had started an insurrection. This insurrection was unexpected. It came at a time when David was strong, when David was a good leader. He was a, a well-established king. Israel was a well-established power, at least in that region. So we have to think of this context now. This, this attack on the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel at large, it, it didn't come from an outside enemy, but it came from within David's own family. It was David's own son. When we think about it, that's, that's not really all that unusual, is it? It seems oftentimes that the people's hearts aren't always really satisfied with their king. People are not always satisfied with their current ruler, are they? 
And so David, he barely escapes with his life. The Bible says that he, he flees the palace and he, he takes the, the, the small group that is loyal to him and they begin to leave Jerusalem. And as they're leaving, they're walking up the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says that David, he's weeping, he's crying, he's barefooted, he even has his head covered. And then one of Saul's relatives. So we think of King Saul. Remember, he was the first king. God was supposed to be the king of Israel, but the people said, no, we want a human king. We want a king over us. And so Saul is appointed. Saul's not a good king. And then David takes the throne. But one of Saul's relatives comes out and intercepts David as he's fleeing the city. And so to add insult to injury, what happens is Saul's relatives begins to curse David. This is still the king. And he begins to curse David. He begins to throw dust, he begins to throw dirt on David. He begins to throw rocks and stones at David. And David and his small band of followers, they march all night out of the city. And, and by daybreak, they've now crossed the Jordan River. And remember, to make this even worse, it's David's son, and David still dearly loves his son. Some of you this morning, you may know that kind of pain. I know parents as a police officer saw many times that there would be children, even adult children, teenage children, young children that would assault their parents and their parents would refuse to press charges. I know parents who their children have stolen money from them, sometimes very large sums of money, and they refuse to get their child in trouble. And yet there are parents perhaps even sitting here this morning, you've not talked to your children in a very long time. You're estranged. But if your child was to call you even now and they were in some type of trouble, you would drive all through the night to help them. David here is Absalom's father. And when David's soldiers, they went out to fight Absalom, there becomes this great fight between these two kings, if you will, or at least this, this one that's trying to take the throne. This is what David does. He, he orders his men to take it easy on Absalom. The Bible says that David says, to deal gently. He says, deal gently with my son Absalom and do not kill him. As a father, David's heart was torn. Some of you this morning, you know that pain. Some of you this morning, maybe you've caused that pain towards your own parents. David's own son Absalom wanted David dead. It wasn't, I, I, want, the, I want the seed, I want the kingdom if, if dad's okay with it. No, he has now devised the plan that they will kill his father and he will now ascend the throne. Absalom is breaking David's heart. And so this is Psalm 3. This is God saving David from death at the hands of his son. This is the background of Psalm 3. I wanted you to know the context of Psalm 3 this morning. It, it's a totally different reading when you come to know the background of Psalm 3. And so these are the conditions. This is the place from which David is writing this particular psalm. And so as we look at the third psalm, we must remember that, that David's not just speaking for himself, but all the psalms are pointing forward to Jesus. As our slide says, the psalms are about Christ in several ways. On the one hand, they make specific predictions that were fulfilled in Christ. And on a deeper level, the psalms point forward to Christ through the life, through the words, the emotions, and the experiences of King David as a whole. In the Psalms, King David is a model, or we would say a foreshadow or a type 
of the great king to come, Dr. James Johnston. He's done a great work uh, on this particular psalm, and much of our sermon is indebted to him for that. Uh, But this psalm tells us what went on in the heart of David. When he had to flee Jerusalem, when Absalom, his son, has rebelled against him, the psalm comes out of the personal experience of David. He was in a difficult situation. He had become an outcast. He had become a fugitive of his very own city, Jerusalem. And what does the Bible call Jerusalem? The city of David. So King David, the author of Psalm 3, he's been driven from the people that he ruled. Absalom, his son, is in rebellion against him. His son is seeking to kill him. His, his intention was to put his father to death. And your heart just goes out to David. So with this background in mind, let us look at Psalm 3, beginning in verse 1. David speaking, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And so we see that word there, increased. And then in the second line, you see the word many. And then in the third line, you see the word many again. We see the word increased. He is saying, David is saying, my adversaries have increased. And now they've even increased to include his very own son. And we see the word many used twice there. There's this growing opposition against King David. And during this time of international peace under David's reign, his greatest danger came from within Israel, within his kingdom, within his very own household. How many of us this morning can identify with some type of betrayal? How many of us have been hurt by someone that is, we at least thought, very near and very dear to us? This is David speaking right out of his heart as he leaves Jerusalem. And many are telling him, many are rising up against me, and many are saying of my soul. This is what they're telling David. There's no deliverance. They're taunting David. They're they're saying, you're hopeless. They're lying to him. They're saying, God God won't deliver you, David. You You don't have a chance. Absalom will kill you, and Absalom will take the kingdom. Ultimately, what they're saying is the promises that God made you, they're not true. They're not true. They won't last. But we need to stop here, and we need to ask ourselves, who is the father of lies? Who whispers lies to us? Satan is the father of lies. The enemy, he wants to kill He he wants you to believe lies about God, and he wants you to believe lies about yourself. Satan comes to lie and to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan hates life, and he loves death. But Jesus, but Jesus, he brings hope. Jesus, he brings newness. Jesus gives everlasting life. Jesus brings abundant life, full and free. And so not only were the people who had revolted against King David belittling him, uh, but ultimately they're attacking God's honor, saying that God would not or God could not save King David. So the rebellious people are saying that, that David would find no help from God, that God had forsaken him. But God did not forsake him. And still to this day, God will not forsake you. 
he will forgive any sinner that comes to him in repentance and faith. But this doesn't mean that our sin doesn't have consequences. Our sin does have consequences for us, and David's sin had consequences for him. But through Jesus, God is the God of forgiveness. God is the God of restoration. God is the God of renewal. He takes our guilt and he takes our shame and he gives us life and peace and salvation. There's one study that I heard. It said 80% of people seek uh, a therapist or counseling and it all boils down to they don't know what to do with their shame and they do not know what to do with their guilt. A therapist are needed. Counseling is needed. Uh, I'm not saying it's not. But what I am saying is when you boil it all down, so much of it comes to, I don't know what to do with my personal guilt. I don't know what to do with my personal shame. And God takes that. When we come to Christ in faith, taking away our guilt and our shame. And so at the end of the second verse, we find this new word for us in this text, Salah. And it can be pronounced about four different ways. Oftentimes it's pronounced Selah. It can also be pronounced Selah. It can be pronounced Salah. And probably the most technical and accurate rendering of it is Sele. Sele. I'm not going to pronounce it that way this morning. So you'll see in our slide that Salah is used in the Psalms just over 70 times. Salah is not translated, but it is transliterated from the Hebrew. And so when something's transliterated, it's, it's when a word that is, is written, uh, when it is then translated, they use the closest uh, letters from a different language. And so they don't say, well, this means uh, house in this language, and in your language it means house, but in another word, so let's use that other word that means the same thing. Transliterated is where they say, well, this is spelled this way, and let's pick the letters that are the closest, and then we'll just put those in there because we don't really know how to translate it. So that's why you have four different pronunciations. And there's still a great discussion as to the exact meaning of the word salah. So as we know, the psalms, they were set to music. The psalms were sung just as Psalm 3 was sung this morning. How beautiful to sing the psalms. Salah may mean a musical rest, a musical pause. It can be interpreted this way. Stop, look, listen. It has this meaning of to, to hang or to weigh or to measure, to, to value what was just said or what was just read or to value what was just sung. The root word of salah means to raise up the volume of the singing or raise up the mind, to meditate, to pause, to contemplate what was just said. Raise up the music or raise up the mind. Raise up the mind to ponder and contemplate the magnitude. Salah is a musical term, if you will, that means a pause, a crescendo, a building up to a peak, or even an interlude, this musical transition. So it's inviting you to stop and consider carefully the magnitude of what is being said. Uh, it's, a, it's a pause in the singing as the music continues. It's a moment to reflect, 
It's like a written cue. It's a time for reflection. To praise, to lift up, to pause. Pausing and calmly thinking about what was just said or sung. And then carefully weighing the meaning and then lifting our hearts to God in praise. And so in verse 2 we see, many are saying of my soul there's no deliverance for him and God. So many are lying to King David. And then in verse 3, we see this strong contrast, this exact opposite here in verse 3, where David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Are you you getting what he's saying? He's saying, many are saying of my soul that eh, there's no deliverance for him. So many people are telling me that, that God's not real, that he doesn't hear me, that he doesn't care. But David says, oh Lord, oh Lord, you are, you are a shield about me. Lord, you do hear me. David's using this language of the battlefield. He proclaims that God is his impenetrable defense. God is his shield. God is his complete protection. David is confident in God's protection. So as a shield, God absorbs the blows that are aimed at him. The Lord is protecting David on every side. The Lord is protecting David all around. David is also confident of his relationship with God. Look at the rest of verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. He's so confident in his relationship with God. You, O Lord, are my glory. David knew that God would vindicate him and that God would lift his head. So how could David be so sure about this? Was this just like some intuition he had? Was this just like, you know, a gut feeling that he had? No. David knew God's promises and David trusted God's promises. He knew God's promises and he trusted God's promises. He knew that God would vindicate him and lift his head. God had made a covenant with David all the way back in 2 Samuel and now David trusted that God would keep it. He's trusting God to restore his crumbling life. God is the only one that can lift David up. Look at verse three. He says, but you Oh, Lord, are a shield. He's saying, Lord, you are my defense. You're my defender. Lord, you're my protector. And he continues, and you, oh, Lord, are my glory. What that means he's saying, Lord, you're my abundance. Lord, you're my honor and you're my dignity, Lord, and you are my reputation. Lord, it's all on you. I've put it all in your hands. You are Lord. And now we must ask ourselves, have we ever been attacked? Have we ever been maligned? Have we ever just been misunderstood? Has your reputation been so smeared that you felt you couldn't even fight it? You could make YouTube videos trying to prove yourself. You could post billboards all over the town trying to defend yourself. You could make social media posts explaining your position to you were blue in the face. And ultimately you would still say, 
God, you know. God, you know. God, I'm going to have to let you fight this battle because, God, I can't. God, I can't even lift my head. I am so defeated. I am so tired. All this fighting has wore me down. Lord, you know. And Lord, I can't. Has anyone felt that way before? I know what it feels like. David understands what it feels like. But more importantly, infinitely more importantly, Jesus understands your pain. Jesus sympathizes with us. Look at our text here on our next slide. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. And so the, the positive reading of that would be, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. We do have the high eternal priest who can sympathize with our weakness. You know, sometimes we tell people you just don't understand. Maybe they're trying to, to sympathize with you and care for you and encourage you and, and you're appreciative of that. You're grateful for that, that God has brought people in your life to encourage you in your walk. But a part of you still thinks, they, they just don't get it. They, they don't understand. But we can't say that about our high priest Jesus. He understands. He understands fully. He understands Completely. He was tempted in every way, just like we were, and yet he never sinned. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. What a great encouragement that should be for you this morning that Jesus understands. He gets it, He knows what you're dealing with. Read verse 4 with me. David says, I was crying out to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Literally what, what's going on here is David is saying, my voice cried out to the Lord. It was this audible calling out to God. Have you cried out to the Lord? Have you cried out to the Lord for salvation? Have you cried out to the Lord for deliverance? Has the Lord heard your cry and has he answered you? King David looked to a greater king. That is, King David, he looks to the sovereign Lord of all glory. David called upon God. And he says here in verse 4, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Perhaps your version reads his holy hill. And so that refers to the place of the Lord's sanctuary. Ultimately, it's referring to God sitting in his heavenly throne and he is presiding, he is ruling, he is reigning over David's troubled heart. And so David yells for help and God answered him. His, his enemies, David's enemies, they tried to convince him that, that God would not save you. But David, he knew better. He knew that God always keeps his word. We try sometimes, don't we? We make some really good promises. Son, if we do this, or if you want to do this, we'll do this. And then we forget, right? My son loves to shoot his rifle. And it was a few weeks ago, and I, he said, Dad, can we, can we shoot my rifle? 
I said, yes, son, I've got to finish up some yard work, and then we'll shoot it. He goes, all right. So I get so consumed and, and getting the yard work done. I think I was building a, a bookshelf as well. And he goes off and plays with the neighbors. And then before we know it, it's dark. And Whitney's made dinner. And we go inside and we, we eat dinner. And I forgot about it. I made the promise, completely forgot about it. He forgot about it. He was having so much fun with his friends. And then the next morning, I'm getting up to go to work. And he goes, Dad, he goes, you, you promised me we were going to shoot my gun last night. And he goes, well, maybe we can shoot it when you get home today. I said, no, son, I, I made you a promise and I failed to keep it. I said, go get, go get the shells. No, go get your rifle, I'll get the shells and we'll go shoot the gun before I go to work. And we woke up half the neighborhood, I'm sure, shooting the <laughs> rifle early in the morning. I guess that's a perk of living in the county. But, but I, meant, I meant it with all my heart. I had the best of intentions to keep that promise and, and I failed to keep that promise. You know, sometimes we, we view God that way, don't we? We, we kind of make him into our own image. He says in the Psalms, you thought I was all together like you? Sometimes we do that. We, we think, well, I make promises, but you know, sometimes things happen and I just, I meant it, but I didn't keep it. I'm afraid that sometimes we project that on God and that is not true, church. God keeps his promises. Every time, faithful, faithful, faithful. He keeps his promises. And David knew and he trusted that God would keep his promises. Look at verse 5. David says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. And so since God sustains and protects David, David could relax and he could rest in the most trying circumstances. He knew that God would always protect him. And so David, he sleeps a peaceful sleep. But left to his own strength, David, he would have tossed and he would have turned through sleepless nights he would have been agitated over his troubling circumstances, but because the Lord was his shield, sleep was possible for David. Our slide in Psalm 121 verse four says, behold, he who keeps Israel, that's speaking of God, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't get drowsy. God doesn't doze off. God does not sleep. And we say, yeah, I've heard this since I was a kid. God doesn't slumber or sleep. I know. No, 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 think about that. Think about that. Our God, he does not slumber and he does not sleep. You know, sometimes I think, what could I accomplish if I didn't have to sleep? You ever thought about that? I could take over the world if I didn't have to sleep. Or I could at least keep the chores around the house done. And sometimes we try to beat sleep, right? That's what I'm guilty of. I'll get up at four o'clock and I'll get it all done. But it catches up to us. We get weary, we have to sleep. Sometimes we just crash. But not God. It's one of the many ways that he is separate from us. That God does not sleep. Ever. 
Verses five and six that we just read, it has been called a mourning psalm. Not sad mourning, but mourning like good morning. It has been called a mourning psalm. This is a good psalm to start the day. Read it again with me, verses five and six. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. In spite of all the problems, in spite of all the troubles, are you remembering the context here of Psalm 3? David has been ran out of Jerusalem. Thousands of people have risen up against him. They are seeking to kill him. He is on the run. He has left the comfort of the palace, and he is barefooted, and he is hiding in the wilderness. He is being pursued, and he says, I lay down and slept. I awoke. So he sleeps. He was kept safe through the night. He awoke. Why? Because the Lord sustains him. And then upon his awaking, he will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. He trusted the Lord. He could sleep at night. He didn't take anything to put himself to sleep. He simply trusted in the Lord. He pillowed his head on the promises of God and he went to sleep. Even though the whole world was against him, David says he will not be afraid. And that word 10,000s there really means myriad. It means many, many. It means an abundance. It's kind of like we use the word million. You know, we say, sorry I was late. I hit like a million red lights. Well, you didn't really hit a million red lights. David didn't count. Okay, there are 10,000 people that are against me this morning. He's saying, there's innumerable people against me. Now think about us. We get worked up when one person is being a thorn in our side. The whole world is trying to kill David. Anxiety will keep you awake at night. And many of us know that from personal experience. Now obviously, there are reasons like exercising right before bed or having too much caffeine, caffeine. There's obviously some reasons that people do not sleep. There's medical disorders. But how many times are we quick to say it's a medical disorder or it's the caffeine or it's me exercising late? But how many times is there really a spiritual root to our sleeplessness? Getting personal, aren't I? When you're tossing and you're turning, I encourage you to take inventory of your soul and ask yourself, what do I need to turn over to the Lord? What do I need to trust God with completely? Remember that God that doesn't slumber or sleep? Lord, what am I holding on to and trying to control in my own life? Lord, what am I focused so hard on that I've taken my eyes off you? Charles Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. I'll read that again. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. You see in that word sovereign, you see the word reign. Sovereign means complete and total rule. He is the Lord. He is reigning. And so we say, Lord, you own it all. 
You're over it all. You're in control of it all. Lord, I'm giving it to you. Lord, I've got to go to sleep. And so David's sleep, it's this evidence that he was resting in God's promises. His mind was at rest. He slept because he knew that God sustains him and that God never sleeps. Read verses five and six again with me. This is called a morning psalm. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Our slide says, if we fear God, then we do not have to be afraid of anything or anyone else. We spoke at length last week about fearing God. If we fear God, we do not have to fear anyone else. Oh, that God would make us a God-pleaser and not men-pleasers. Oh, that we would fear him and we would not have to fear anyone else. And that's not some, some arrogance, some pride of, well, I don't care about your feelings because I'm serving God. No, no, no. Where is God? I want to please God. And all your negativity, all your distraction, doesn't matter to me because I fear God. My heart doesn't have, have time to fear anyone else. Oh, that that would be true in my own life. And oh, that that would be true in your own life that we would fear God and not fear men, not care about their petty opinions. Perhaps you've heard that old quote, it's the 1740-70 rule. When you're 17, you think everybody cares and is judging you and looking at you, and when you're 40, you decide you don't care what anybody else thinks, and when you're 70, you realize nobody was thinking about you in the first place. there's some truth to that we get so worked up about other people's opinions do we care what God thinks that's what gives someone courage the fear of God if you fear God you have no one else to fear David trusted God and David was fearless read verse 7 with me Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. That, that phrase there, arise, O God, or arise, O Lord, that is a battle cry. So whenever you read that in the Psalms, know that's a battle cry. Arise, O Lord, arise, O God. It's a battle cry for God to engage the enemy. David's heart cry is a battle cry here. It's a confident appeal to God to rally and to defeat his enemies. David compares here his pursuers to wild animals, and he calls upon the Lord to defeat them. Verse 8. After saying in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. He then says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so there in verse 7, David compares his pursuers to wild animals. He calls upon the Lord to defeat them. And this is a plea that's motivated by righteous indignation, a, a zealous passion for God's glory. And again, I want you to remember there in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, it's... It's an expression that was sung in psalms. It was sung in songs at the beginning of a war. 
And so as, as the people would, uh, before they would march into war, they would, they would rally together and they would sing. And oftentimes the song that they would sing would start with, Arise, O Lord. It's this battle cry. Knowing that God, God fights for his people. You know, it really hurts to get hit in the cheekbone. I don't know if you've ever been punched, but it doesn't tickle. And a, a good blow to the jaw, it will just, it'll just knock you right out. So he says at the end of verse 7, For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You, you've hit them right in the jaw. And you've shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now, I don't know who puts up the sign on uh, Lincoln Street. But I don't imagine we'll ever see, For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and you've shattered the teeth of the wicked. Maybe that needs to go on church signs. I'm not for sure. Maybe that would, you know, kind of rattle some people and, and they would, you know, take, take an inventory of their life. But we don't see that a lot, do we? We don't see that verse, you know, stitched on the pillow that's in the, in the guest room. Well, I mean, that'd be a little odd, wouldn't it? You've smitten all my enemies on the cheek and you've shattered their teeth. Psalm 3, 7. You know. We don't see that a lot. But it's true, isn't it? It's God's word. It's accurate. He's saying, God, you've broken their teeth. Notice David didn't say, let me do it, Lord. He didn't say, I'm the one that done it. or I didn't like them, so I hit him." He says, God, you're the one that have done it. And it's a lot of figurative language there, but... He's saying they're not, they're not able to bite me anymore. This, this predator, it's, it's powerless without its teeth. Lord, they're, they're not even vicious anymore. What he's saying is God will disarm my enemies. He's saying I ain't scared because God, because of God. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people Salah. I'm afraid that we fly past that first line in verse 8 so quickly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful truth in Scripture. That the Lord is the author and the finisher of our faith. That he is the originator and the completer of our faith. That salvation belongs to him, that he can do with it as he pleases. That he dispenses salvation as he wills. And I, and I try to ingrain that truth so much in the lives of my children because it will change everything. When you come to the realization that it's all God's and God can do whatever he pleases, that he does not owe us anything, and when we begin to realize, God, it is all yours. That salvation even belongs to you, Lord. It changes everything. It makes us honor him. It makes us fall down and worship him. It makes us fear him. This truth will make us adore him. It will make us serve him. Knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord, it brings thanks from our heart. It brings praise from our heart. And then what it does is it humbles us. Salvation belongs to you, God. What a great gift from God. 
And so whether that salvation is the here and now, this immediate physical salvation, particularly uh, in this psalm for David, whether it's for us, for some danger in our life currently, and ultimately in the eternal realm, salvation is always God's, and God's the one that gives it. And he gives it to all those who call upon the name of Jesus. Look at that last line. Your blessing be upon your people. So David, he's invoking God's blessing upon everyone that will put their trust in God. Your blessing, God, be upon your people. David says some wonderful things about God in this psalm. In verse 3, David calls God a shield. And so as the shield, God covers those who are his own. God was also the uplifter of David's head, the one who lifts my head. You may be down, but only God, only God, can truly lift you up above all the commotion, can lift you up above the noise, can lift you up above the darkness. Only God can lift you up above the sin. Only God can lift you up above the guilt that you have and the shame that you bear and only God can give you salvation and abiding peace so every personal trial it it teaches us to trust the Lord more fully What, what others mean for evil God intends for good and in the midst of adversity we should trust in God knowing that deliverance only comes from God and so as Life storms rage around us. God then speaks peace into our troubled hearts and he calms the storm. Every trial, every trial, every difficulty, we do not have to fear, but we are commanded to trust the Lord. The same God who heard David, he will hear you today. He will hear you this morning. Do you trust him? Do you trust him like David did? So what does this mean for us? David called out to God and and God physically saved him. What ultimately happened is Absalom was killed and and David rallied the people and turned their hearts to him and David reigned again from Jerusalem. But God doesn't always save our lives when we call out to him physically, does he? Sometimes we lay down to go to sleep at night and we don't wake up the next morning. You know, it's kind of like Peter being rescued in Acts chapter 12, but just a few days before in Acts chapter 12, James was beheaded. So James has his head cut off, and five to six verses later, Peter's rescued out of prison. And then in Acts chapter 5, the, the apostles, they're put in jail, but, but then they're released. And then in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 6, Stephen's stoned to death. You know, we're not always delivered from immediate physical trouble in this life, are we? So how does this psalm, how does it apply to you and how does it apply to me? We must remember that David was a type. He was a foreshadow of a greater king that is to come. David's always pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. 
We think of it like this. David was rejected by his own people, and Jesus was rejected here on earth. David's enemies taunted him, but Jesus' enemies taunted him upon the tree. David was rejected as king, and Jesus was rejected as king here on earth. David was anointed king, but Jesus is the anointed one, and Jesus is the king of kings. It's all about Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. And so we we go through these trials. Well, these trials are shared by all Christians across all periods of history. And the comfort that's given in this psalm, remember, it's only for God's children. Did you see that last verse? Your blessing be upon your people. God's people. Those who have come to him by faith in his son. And it's for God's people anywhere, everywhere, at any time. God's people. So the only hope for rebellious people. People turned their back really quick on King David, did they not? But the only hope for rebellious people like you, rebellious people like me, the only hope through the very king that we've all betrayed. And so this psalm is pointing to a greater king. This psalm is pointing to a greater salvation. If you now, now, if you will believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for the salvation of your soul, you will sleep in peace You'll even be able to face death with confidence. Knowing this, knowing this, church, that Christ is both God and Christ is King. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we trust you, but teach our hearts to trust you more. Lord, we're not always saved in the immediate context here and now. But eternity is much more to gain. So as Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, would you be the king of our hearts? Oh, Jesus, would you be the king of our homes? Oh, Jesus, would you be the king of this church? It's all yours. In King Jesus' name we pray, amen.